This Slate podcast is brought to you by Bing.com, the search engine that helps you make everyday decisions with the help of your friends. Now, what your friends like on Facebook is in your search results on Bing. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Change-Up, the new comedy, body switch comedy, starring Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds. And with me to discuss The Change-Up in the Slate studio today is Pamela Paul. Hello, Pamela. Hi there. So you are a writer and editor at The New York Times, and you also often freelance on topics obliquely related to the subject of this movie. Do you want to give your credentials or justification, or why did you want to see this pretty self-evidently awful movie with me and discuss it? Um, Well, this is the kind of movie that um, when the trailer passes by, uh, my husband says, you can see that with your cousin. Uh, My cousin lives in London, which basically uh, is a sign of of how much he didn't want to see it. And frankly, um, I didn't particularly want to see it, although I did very much want to do the uh, spoiler with you afterwards. um, Because, uh, well, I am a Jason and Bateman fan, I will say. Um, But I do often write about uh, issues related to um, the depiction of family and uh, relationships in the media. And work-life balance and the kind of things that this movie allegedly tackles. Yeah, (laughs) ham-handedly gropes towards. Um, So the premise is that these two guys are buddies, right? Predictably, Jason Bateman is the square um, middle class or maybe upper middle class lawyer at a white shoe law firm who has a wife and three beautiful children in a suburban house. Ryan Reynolds is the screw up. He's an aspiring actor who can only get roles in light porno Cinemax type movies. And uh, as the movie begins, we're given a glimpse of each of their two very stereotyped lifestyles. This is a straight up Freaky Friday switch, basically, right? Two people envy each other's lives and then unbeknownst to them, a magic force intervenes to to give them each other's bodies. Right. And to therefore come to appreciate the value of their real lives. So what was it about this movie that was so, to, to, to me at least, profoundly ugly and repulsive from frame one? Like this kind of movie, I feel like body switch aside, just this kind of the gender anxiety that's on display and performed throughout this movie is something that is absolutely endemic right now in in guy comedies. It's not necessarily in every guy comedy, but it is in a huge percentage of them. And it's going to be hard to review this movie because I feel like I've already reviewed it this year, you know? I mean... For example, you haven't seen all these necessarily because, unlike me, you don't have to. But the uh, the Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston, um, what was it called? Just Go With It comedy earlier this year had a similar kind of just this heavy misogyny, just this strange hatred and fear of women. I don't, I don't even know. There's not any way to <laughs> talk about movie, these movies without analyzing I don't think that. you could. Call, you, I don't think it would be fair to call this movie misogynistic because it was equally hateful and contemptuous towards men. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that with this movie, it's kind of like. You know, the way Madagascar 2 is to, you know, a really good Pixar movie in that it tries to ape this very delicate balance, you know, that the Pixar movies have of appealing to young children while at the same time managing to entertain um, adults and keep them intellectually involved and stimulated. This movie is like the, you know, the, the third runner up to a successful Judd Apatow movie in that it tries to have the, you know, requisite gross out humor combined with copious uh, usage of the word fuck with the ultimately family-friendly endorsement of the, the sort of modern peer marriage. Um, and in this case, to me, it was like, you know, a sour pickle sandwich being, you know, slapdashed with uh, a veneer of, you know, sickly sweet grape jelly. What it was attempting to, you know, all the anxieties about the the human body, um, both male and female, um, that it was trying to 
you know, glean some humor from. None of that rang true. And then the emotion um, was completely false as well. It was like, you know, you know, when they had to have that, you know, there was the guitar strum or the, you know, little piano riff at any time you were supposed to have some kind of emotion. Can you give some examples when you say you think it was equally contemptuous toward men as it was toward women? I mean, the, the, the shaving of the scrotum <laughs> um, and that being, I, I, I mean, I could, couldn't really get what that was about. It was like... You mean the scene where it's completely inexplicable why this would ever happen. But anyway, he has to, <laughs> to shave the balls of his, his best friend or his own body, basically. Actually, when I think about it, the potential for humor in that scene is really rich. It's really weird. It's like you're encountering your own body as another person looking at it from the outside. There could be so many moments, right, of, of not, just, uh, not just humor, but kind of insight from that but instead as you say it was there was just there was an immediate attempt to go for the gross out in a way that just fell completely flat well yeah i mean and and, and part of that i mean was just that the the whole flatness of the of this mitch character who was completely unbelievable from the get-go i mean the the, the young so actor many, dude. Yeah, yeah i mean there's so many rich varieties of boy men on screen right now and a lot of them are are perfectly believable and this one just wasn't i mean you had it you, you got the sense that apart from the set designer who sort of created this ultimate you know high school or sort of or college era bachelor pad um there was no attempt to create any kind of um actual character there wasn't for, even kind of the consistency of that he was a, a, a frat boy or something actually there was some an interesting road that could have been gone down that to me just became an excuse for what i found one of the most misogynistic and sort of um just just primally bizarre scenes in the whole movie where there's been an ongoing plot about tatiana who's this kind of fuck buddy of the of the young mitch guy right and that every tuesday night she comes over and they have this wild sex and that's it they have no other relationship and um the square guy jason bateman in ryan reynolds body is awaiting Tatiana. She comes to his door in just a raincoat and takes it off and they start to and they're about to start to have sex and then he realizes that she's pregnant. She's like 9 months pregnant and she's jumping on top of him. The whole audience that we saw it with is sort of going, "Ooh, gross." And then that's exactly the the reaction of the male character too. And then right, this he, just this repugnance toward the, the, this hatred for the pregnant female body. And like and then, and then bizarrely it, there was this whole plot, you know, this idea that he had somehow screwed up uh Mitch's regular Tuesday night um, sex date with this woman when clearly she's about to give pregnant and, you know, give birth and is going to be out of commission probably for the next, you know, three or four months anyway. But that but that did at least point to this interesting idea that the Ryan Reynolds character, when he was in his own body, thought it was really hot to have this Tuesday night sex date with this pregnant woman, which is sort of weird and could be kind of interesting that it's his kink or something like that. But that was never explored either. Then, then later on, there's this really gross scene where Leslie Mann playing the wife of Jason Bateman when he's in his own body, right? Playing the suburban square guy's wife takes a shit and this other guy is like watching her and is grossed out by it. It's just this awful kind of vision of marriage as, you know, oh, well, of course, people that are married just sit in front of each other and have diarrhea and (laughs) complain about it. It was so disgusting and also just sort of not resonant with anything real. So it just, that that was one of those moments where the gross out joke just seemed to have been hastily slapped down on paper by a team of scriptwriters and didn't flow from 
any character or any human reality that could actually make you laugh. Right. And I mean, that, and, and the fact that that was in the trailer as one of the signature moments was, you know, one of the um, many alarm bells that went off before. It made the bridesmaid scene, right? The famous scatological bridesmaid scene seem like Chekhov in comparison, right? <laughs> I mean, it had that had so much story and character behind it compared to that, that moment in this movie. Right. Well, I mean, that, that were, there were so many things like that where this, this, this film, I guess, tried to take, um, you know, successful elements from previous movies and sort of, you know, hastily uh, throw them in the pot. I mean, the whole thing about, you know, again, this idea of like, who is Ryan Reynolds' character? He's supposed to be a stoner. So we see him lighting up a joint sort of in a serial fashion in the first, you know, few scenes. But then that completely disappears. Um, And the, uh, you know, then he's supposed to be somebody who, you know, gives up on things too easily. But we never hear about him doing anything other than being an aspiring actor. So we have no sense that, you know, he at some point wanted to be something else. He um, also does some things toward the beginning that are just so awful and unpleasant. Back when he's in his own body, before the switch takes place, he, for example, treats Jason Bateman's children really horribly. You know, he, he curses in front of his daughter. He doesn't seem to know their names. He just seems like a horrible friend and kind of a dickish guy right, never that you wouldn't that these life. guys are going to be friends in the first place. And there's not really a believable trajectory where it's acknowledged that he was a dick in the beginning. Well, this is part of this whole what I see in, in a lot of these guy comedies. And again, not all. There's tons of, of, of dumb guy comedies from the past 10 years that I love, including Wedding Crashers, which was directed by David Dobkin, the director of this movie. But here, there's not any kind of basis of a friendship that we would care about salvaging in the first place. So whatever moral discoveries and progress they make in, during the, the course of the body switch, they still just come back to the same shitty guy. They were in the first right. place. Well, to go back to the the, the children thing, I mean, I. I don't know. Is there – there should be some kind of misogynistic, some kind of semantic equivalent for baby hating. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of humor to be uh, made out of, you know, mocking babies and children. But this was not it. This – I mean, the contempt for babies. There were scenes that just made you cringe where, you know, you have a child about to stick her hand into, a, you know, a blender um, or wielding knives that, you know, it was just hard to watch, honestly. There was like an over reliance on cringe humor without having, you know, any kind of of release. So, you know, you had these scenes where, you know, the awkward sex scenes with a woman, you know, the third runner up in the Jessica Simpson lookalike contest who's nine months pregnant, um, which is incredibly awkward. And there's sort of there's some no real release from that. There's no, um, you know, like you said, like a quirk in Ryan uh, Reynolds character that might somehow make that um, believable in some way. The same thing with the with the torturing of the babies. And then there was that scene, even the work scenes um, where, you know, they show, of course, each of the characters trying to go about their first day in the body of the opposite character. Um, Jason Bateman is a is a corporate lawyer. And so Ryan Reynolds in Jason Bateman's body has to be in this M&A meeting in which he so blatantly misbehaves that, you know, anyone who has worked in any kind of corporate setting ever can't watch it without being, you know, just completely embarrassed by the whole scenario, embarrassed without the humor. Um, and then Ryan Reynolds uh, is in a Lorna, which um, I guess is the film's attempt to create some kind of new uh, new humorous uh, portmanteau. Word. Yes, um, a, a what was it? A light, a light porno, um, and you know has to stick his finger in the uh, anus of this hideously plastic surgery, you know, riddled woman. Um, and again, there's just there's nothing. There's no relief in it. It's like it's like cringe humor has to have some kind of release. 
in order for it to work. And there was no release. Well, especially what this movie was not able to do was get back from all those scenes to the sentimental place that it wanted to resolve. And there was something almost <laughs> tragic comic about this movie's attempt to, in the end, affirm family and affirm the primacy of Jason Bateman's love for his family and also give the Ryan Reynolds character a girlfriend who's played by Olivia Wilde. So he, I guess, also has some prospect of, you know, right. this heterosexual happiness that we're supposed to affirm at the end. And yet the whole movie, basically, including The Portrait of a Marriage, is all about sort of the horror, I thought, of, of women's bodies and of bodies in general and of, of the other person who's in front of you. There's almost not a single moment in this movie where anyone really enjoys anyone else's company or experiences pleasure, with one exception I actually, maybe this is just as being the parent of a young child myself, but I did find a little bit of freedom and pleasure in that one montage where Jason Bateman in the body of Ryan Reynolds gets to have the day of a single guy, remember? And he goes, <gasps> Although... he, takes, he takes a Jonathan Franzen book to a restaurant and reads it and then he yes. makes himself a nice dinner and he learns to rollerblade and he basically just sort of has a nice day. Yes, but there was one very false moment in that montage, which was he went to an aquarium. No parent would ever go to the aquarium by themselves. <laughs> like, who would do that? You're always at the Museum of Natural History, the aquarium, or like some godforsaken children's mu- museum with your children. So you would never in a million years. That's true. He gets stoned and goes to the aquarium. But maybe that's supposed to be a gesture of him him missing his family or his home life. I don't know. It didn't ring as false for me. I still sort of wanted that day. Stoned at the aquarium <laughs> and all. Actually, Pamela, let me just stop you for one moment for a word from our sponsor. Slate Podcasts are happy to be sponsored by Bing, the search engine that helps you decide. When we're talking about movies, um, there's an easy Bing shout out, which is try binging the movie that you're about to see and see how nicely you can lay out all of the uh, the trailers, the uh, social search feature on Bing, which permits you to see what your friends are saying about a new movie and also where you can find it at a movie theater in your neighborhood. And when you're ready to buy your ticket, you can buy it right there on the homepage and be on your way. But don't buy a ticket to this one. I spent a lot of the movie, honestly, just feeling sorry for the actors. I, I felt particular compassion um, for Ryan Reynolds and um, and Leslie Mann. I, Ryan Reynolds, I think, again, um, proving that this movie equally, you know, hated men and women in equal measure. I think he's become typecast. He's like he's like if any woman in Hollywood complains about being objectified and about only being cast for their looks and always being cast as the girlfriend, men can always say, but look at Ryan Reynolds, poor Ryan Reynolds. He's always cast as the good looking guy. And I, I feel like, you know, 70% of the jokes about him, you know, dating back to what was the, the proposal have been about how good looking he is. It's true. Ryan Reynolds, like the young Brad Pitt, is someone who suffers for, for his beauty. He's not given credit for being as funny as I think he can be because, because of the physiognomy he was born into, which this movie, again, could have done something interesting with, right? right. What is it like to be, maybe he's shallow because he's never been given any other choice because he's trapped in this body. There was a very, very false note with the Olivia Wilde character, right, who's this uh, hot young paralegal at Jason Bateman's firm, who he's always lusted after. And uh, he now gets to flirt with her, right, because he's in a different person's body and goes on some dates with her and stuff. Um, of course, in the end, doesn't cheat on his wife with her because there has to be that scene in, in every one of these these almost betray your wife movies as well. But there's the simple fact that she was able to make the switch, right? I mean, she sort of starts to fall for Jason Bateman in Ryan Reynolds' body, the idea being that she she sees through to the person who she actually likes. Then when they switch back again at the end, 
she ends up as Ryan Reynolds' girlfriend. So that, again, just sort of made it seem as if, ah, whoever's in that body, I'll take <laughs> exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's so contemptuous, again, of this woman who is supposedly, you know, um, a woman of some intellectual ability being an associate in this prestigious, you know, uh, corporate Atlanta uh, law firm. Couldn't there at least have been a joke milked from that, right? That she goes on the third date with the guy and he has a completely different personality than he did the first two times because it's actually someone different in the body. And then maybe there could have been something funny about her saying, like, oh, well, I'll take it because of, you know, what body it is. But that never really even happens either. I mean, Olivia Wilde, I'm curious if she, since this is Olivia Wilde week, right? She's in Cowboys and Aliens, too. Is she an yes, alien I spent in that four movie? hours yesterday <laughs> watching Olivia Wilde's face 13 <laughs> feet high in front of me because I saw Cowboys and Aliens in this on the same day. I, I, I picture Olivia Wilde's face as like the picture that, you know, women bring into the doctor when they're requesting Botox. Like, I want to look <laughs> as, like, shiny and taut and luminous and bright as that because she has this kind of... I mean, is she an alien in Cowboys and Aliens? I ask that in all seriousness because she... Spoiler alert. Yeah, she does turn out to be an alien. <laughs> okay, because she's like this totally surreal looking human being. I've um, always yeah, I've always found her beauty very strange. I mean, she's she's indisputably attractive, but there's something... Comple- yeah, exactly. Completely opaque and immobile about her beauty that's completely uninteresting. As soon as I see her, I'm just, just nodding off. Maybe she also hasn't been given a chance to play anything. Apparently, she's a very intelligent person in real life. And maybe when she gets a little bit roughed up right. by life... She'll be given some some better roles. Well, I mean, I don't know. It hasn't happened to Leslie Mann. And, and that was the other person who really elicited my sympathy in this movie because I feel like she has to walk this incredibly hard tightrope between being a woman who represents all that is, you know, tired, annoying, um, selfish, shrewish wife, shrewish in, you know, in wifedom. And at the same time, being like the hot wife that we all really want to be married to, you know, in the end after after all. And I think that uh, and how many times did she have to go through that scene of like, I, I, I felt like, again, as if the movie were sort of constantly twisting in time or rewinding. She kept, you know, having that that same scene where she wells up with tears as she, you know, recounts her, the way in which she's overlooked in her marriage and, and you know, her needs are not being met. and it, Which she, is the I mean, exact she same like scene she played in, in Knocked Up, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, and another big difference between, you know, the this um, sort of pale imitation um, to Knocked Up uh, and this movie was the supporting cast. You know, in, in Knocked Up, you had your Kristen Wiig's, you, know, you had your amazingly funny and talented people in the minor roles. And yet, as the credits rolled in this movie, it was like, once you got past the four leads, you recognized no one's name, nobody stood out. There was that, There was no peripheral... Well, Ar- Alan Arkin's actually in it, but he's completely wasted as, as Ryan Reynolds' father, right? He gets two scenes and he's just sort of... And that storyline was totally unbelievable. I mean, that was one, you know... Alan Arkin plays his father, who seem is seemingly about to embark on his, you know, ninth or tenth marriage. Um, and so we are to glean from this that Ryan Reynolds holds his father in contempt, though we don't really see any way in which Ryan Reynolds uh, differs from his father, and that the father is disappointed in his son. And so this is supposed to be the arc of Ryan Reynolds's character that 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 gets resolved in the same way that Jason Bateman in the end finds out that, you know, he really is happy being a married father of three. Um, We're supposed to find out that Ryan Reynolds really is happy being a failed actor in Lorno films um, and the disappointing son of his father. And yet the, I mean, we we have no sense of of who this character is and and the finale where he, um, you know, he initially refuses to give a speech um, at his father's wedding 
presumably because he dislikes his father's serial marriages. And in the end, inexplicably, really, he decides that he wants to give this toast after all. Um, And then uh, again, in that slapdashed, happy ending way, we see that the ninth wife isn't what we we're going to expect, which was, you know, someone decades his junior, but instead looks like a perfectly nice woman in an age-appropriate, you know, somewhat close approximation of Alan Arkin's demographic. But it just, the whole thing didn't, you know, it ran completely false. It was just there purely as a contrivance so that his character can have an arc. It was like somebody said, insert arc, you know, at right. some point during the Right. I mean, it, again, like in order for there to be a convincing switch between the two characters, there has to be something truly, you know, despicable about their characters, but also the thing that, you know, they ultimately learn to empathize with the other person and find, you know, some some form of interest, some reason why um, both the person who's in the wrong body would come to appreciate that character and why the rightful owner of that body would want their body back. And we see that with the Jason Bateman character as cartoonishly as it is drawn. But there is no reason for Ryan Reynolds really to want to go back to being Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I think that's why they throw him Olivia Wilde in the end, right? Because otherwise he would just be getting the short end of the stick at the end of the movie. The thing I most hope when I see this particular kind of romantic comedy, which I would also put um, uh, the switch in, the the Jason Bateman, Jennifer Jennifer Aniston, just go with it. So many movies, Hall Pass, so many movies I've seen in the past year. It's just that I really, really hope they don't ring true for anyone, including the screenwriters. (laughs) I hope there aren't people whose romantic lives and and internal lives feel like the lives of the characters in this movie because there's just such poverty there. It's really <laughs> grim to contemplate. Okay, Pamela, thanks so much. It sounds like you and I both suffered, but at any rate, it was really, really fun to talk to you about it afterwards. So thanks for coming in to talk about the change yet. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Tage Jensen. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.